0: As always, if you are one of our guests, we do hope you will stick around out of services. Let us get to know you and you get to know us just a little bit better. Uh, Lou is out of town today, and so there will be no children's Bible hour this morning. If you want to grab your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 3, and we will be reading verses 20 through 30 as we continue our study through the gospel of Mark, uh, walking step in step with Jesus seeing the steps that he took, so that we might follow in his example and thereby deepen our relationship with God. Mark chapter 3, let's begin reading in verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that he couldn't even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He's out of his mind. And the scribes came down from Jerusalem and were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. But is guilty of an eternal sin where they were saying he has an unclean spirit let's pray we pray father that you would show us the power that was at work in the life of our Lord make it clear so that knowing this power we go forth and minister in this world pray this in jesus name amen the song that we just sang did you catch the the final verse thus led by his spirit two fountains of love thou soon shall be fitted for service above led by the spirit as we come to mark chapter 3 again there are a number of steps that jesus takes in this chapter back in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, a text that I preached on, it was uh, several years ago, but where we see Jesus get angry. He looks around at the people in anger, and he does that, and doesn't sin, by the way. That's allowed, you know, to be angry but don't sin. But in righteous indignation, he looks around, and he seeks to give the people a clear perspective of God's will. He's always... He's regularly doing that, giving people a a clear perspective on God's will, something that we can do with Jesus. In verses 13 through 19, we see Jesus calling the 12 apostles. And as he calls these 12 apostles, these are the guys who are going to be with him throughout his ministry. And he will train these disciples to continue on His ministry. You know, we we can continue that ministry. We're supposed to. Continue to train disciples. Make disciples, train disciples. That's a step that we can definitely uh, take with our Lord. In the text that we're going to see here, one step that Jesus takes in verses 20-30 through is He defends the actions of His ministry. The ministry that He's engaged in is coming under attack. From his opponents, now he's serving God, and even in the midst of serving God, he's experiencing opposition. Same thing can happen to us, and Jesus shows us how to properly to how properly defend the actions of our ministries. At the end of this chapter, one thing Jesus does is he teaches the true nature of the family of God. That the family of God, his brothers and his sisters, are those who do the will of God. That's the true nature of the family of God. That we are united in blood, but it is the blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We want to take a closer look at verses 20 through 30. And what this section is about is the true nature of power. Stepping with power. That's what Jesus is doing here in this account. And he is teaching that God's power is superior to, to all other power in the world, in the universe, and even beyond into the spiritual realm. Because what we see here is the contrast between the power of God and the power of the evil one, and how Jesus does not deny the, the power that Satan has. Rather, he shows that actually God's power is far superior to the power that the devil has. Jesus shows us about the true nature of power. But it's, again, in the context of having to once again defend his ministry from opposition. We get a glimpse of the disbelief that Jesus is up against in his ministry. He's surrounded by it again and again. He has to endure it during his time here on earth. And I don't want you to miss this. Jesus has been performing miracles. He healed a paralytic back in chapter 2. Earlier, he healed a man with a shriveled hand at the beginning of chapter 3. He's been doing miracles. He will continue to do miracles. And yet, the people continue to disbelieve even with the miracles. That is what just absolutely is jaw-dropping. What? Which I think brings into focus... The opposition that we hear sometimes where folks say, you know, if if God just did X, whatever that is, and it may even be something miraculous, if God would just heal my relative, if God would show up and do this particular thing, then I'll believe Him. Well, according to Scripture, no you wouldn't. Because the nature of unbelief is such that even with the strongest evidence, there was still a refusal to believe. Part of it is rooted in confusion. The scribes demonstrate a a confusion about the the nature of the power of Christ and about the source of the power, really. But also, we read how Jesus' own family are confused. They're confused about the nature of of his ministry. They think back there in verse 21, they think he's out of his mind. They think he's crazy. Right? Second cousin to Harvey the Rabbit and all that. Belongs in a padded room. Straight jacket and all that. He's crazy. He's out of his mind. And so they they got to go take charge of him. they got to go seize him in order to, you know, help him out. Jesus, he, he really doesn't defend himself against his family and, and their claims that he's crazy. But again, there is that 35th verse, which just, it smacks with Jesus essentially saying, they're not really my family because they're not in the family, because they're not doing the will of God. What? Wow. We'll, we'll see later on in in the story as it were the, the, the grand narrative of the New Testament His mother is a believer. Mary, the mother of Jesus there in Acts chapter 1. We know that at least two of his brothers come round to the faith James and Jude they end up being leaders apparently. they write a couple of epistles in the New Testament but right here they're just they're missing it they're confused about the nature of his ministry. And so Jesus, he says, you want to be part of my family? My mother, brothers, and sisters are are those who do the will of God. Again, he's providing clarity about the nature of his ministry. But man, really, this is about those scribes, isn't it? The scribes who are very confused. And they are not believing in the power source for Jesus' ministry. The source of his power, they... They think he's possessed. He's got a demon in him. That's what they're saying about Jesus. They're ascribing, they're, they're ascribing his power to the devil. Saying he's possessed. He cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons, and all that. Those are the two accusations that they make. In response to those accusations, Jesus, he not only defends his ministry. But then he goes further and he says, you don't even know the nature of the power that's at work in his ministry. That in fact, the power of the Spirit is superior. And in fact, that the superiority of the the Spirit over Satan, you guys, you're you're totally missing the bus on this. And so as we walk through the, the narrative here, beginning in verse 23 jesus is that's where he begins to clarify the nature and the source of his power and in that he is vindicating his ministry he's showing that the house that he's building it's not under attack and he, he does this by telling a few parables uh, about this kingdom can't uh, can't stand against itself if it's divided against itself the house can't stand if it's divided against itself And all this drives toward, well, Satan, if he's divided against himself, his kingdom can't stand. Now, again, remember, the the context is he's been doing all this good stuff, all this wonderful stuff, healing people. and, And all he ends up with is a bunch of naysayers and disbelief. And there's no explanation for it, except they don't want to believe, they don't want him. He's not the Messiah. That they thought he should be. He's not the one sent by God that he ought to be. And, and so, as he is speaking these parables, he calls the team huddle, right? He called them together and he makes it known the superiority of the Spirit over Satan. Uh, if Satan rises against himself, he can't stand. His kingdom's actually coming to an end. But then, verse 27 about this strong man. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless first he binds the strong man. Now, who's the strong man in the parable? It seems like the one who's being plundered here is the devil himself by none other than the Spirit of God who's at work to bind the strong man. Again, here is Jesus, and he's providing clarity. And it's not so much a a contrast in Uh, Division or or not standing together. The point is that Jesus, the the power that is at work in Jesus's ministry, it's not demonic. It doesn't come from the devil. It doesn't come from the evil one. In fact, it's consistent. That's the nature of power. Power is consistent with itself. Because if it isn't, house of cards, right? It's falling. It's going to fall down and collapse. But he also tells these parables to say, you guys are you're missing the obvious you are missing the obvious jesus may be upset that they're missing it but i think he's most upset because these scribes scribes by the way those were the the guys who were charged with copying the text of scripture and and therefore would have been very proficient with the scripture would have known the old testament text the the hebrew bible and therefore, they, they should have known about the power of the Spirit at work throughout the Hebrew Bible. Because he did show up again and again. And yet, they, again, they, they miss it, and instead turn around and say, No, no, the power that's at work in, in Jesus is de- of demonic origin. And I think that is what is so frustrating for God the Son, is to hear, how the works that he is doing are are being attributed to not God the Holy Spirit, but to the evil one. That is what Jesus himself simply cannot abide. And that's what makes this blasphemy, this particular blasphemy, so grievous that there's no forgiveness for it. This is the text that talks about the unforgivable eternal sin, right? Right? It is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And let, let me just say, because I know sometimes we, we get things twisted in our minds, and and, and if you've ever wondered, man, have, have I ever committed this particular sin? Have I, have I committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Chances are, if you're asking the question, you didn't. Because chances are you don't even know what it is, right? But then the second thing I need to say is, this is a very specific sin in a very specific context, wherein the religious leaders of Jesus's day are standing face to face with the Son of God, they are seeing, witnessing the miracles that He is performing, and then they are saying, "Well, that's not act, that's not the power of God at work. That's the power of the devil." That is again the context. And so, the next time that you're face to face, with the son of god and he performs a miracle in front of you make sure you ascribe it to the spirit of god right all right yeah so that's again that's the force of this uh, and it also shows the seriousness of denying the power of the spirit again to deny the the holy spirit as the power source for the ministry of jesus that's a very serious thing but i think it's also a a very serious thing not necessarily uh, a one-to-one equivalent but it is a serious thing to deny the power of the holy spirit in the christian we should not do that right we we know what what the scripture says in fact one of the texts that we're going to look at here in, in just a moment is over in Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, where scripture says that you are not in the flesh, however, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Brother, sister, Christian, do you have the spirit of God dwelling in you? Yeah, don't say no, right? Of course, of course. Because if we don't, well, it's very serious, right? You don't, you don't belong to him. You don't belong. And again, not my opinion, right? That's just that's take it up with Paul. Take it up with the Holy Spirit who inspired Paul to put pen to parchment and write that. So, coming back to the Mark three text, this this shows us just just how warped these guys were, and they were. They were so entrenched in their unbelief they double down and say, not only are you not the Son of God, but the power at work in you is not God the Holy Spirit. Oof. Very serious. But then again, Jesus wants them in, in His day, but He also wants us today to understand that the Spirit is stronger than the strong man. And, and again, in the parable here, the strong man seems to be the devil that it's satan and he's got his house his kingdom and again jesus does not deny that he has some strength he has some power he's the evil one but his power is is as that of a representative of the power of darkness not the power of god whereas the spirit that's working through jesus that is the power of god at work And it is infinitely stronger than the power that is at work in the devil and his minions. And in fact, so powerful is it that God not only binds the strong man, but he then plunders his house. It's going on in Jesus' day. It it continues even to today as people believe the gospel, obey the gospel, as they come out of the kingdom of darkness and come into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. Yeah, that's... That's the despoiling of the dominion of darkness that takes place even today. Let's uh, let's put some pieces together for us today. We've kind of been making a a bit of application as we go along, but let's really uh, drill down into a a couple of things here. What does it mean for us to step with power, even the power of God, uh, the Holy Spirit in us? Well, several texts uh, highlight the spirit in the believer. I just want to look at a a few of these, Uh, first in Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, if you have been in Bible classes uh, Sunday mornings, again they start at 9.30, just there's a little commercial for you, right, Uh, Bible class for all ages, okay, Uh, but if you've been in there, you know that Ephesians 1, this is a text that uh, we've uh, talked about uh, for uh, the first few verses at least, verses 3 through 5. Uh, As it pertains to the good intention of God from eternity on behalf of the believer. Well, verses 13 and 14 now begin to look at the application of the work of God in the life of the believer. Verse 13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. One thing that we can do is we can acknowledge the power of the seal, shall we say, right? And we've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We need to acknowledge the power that's at work in that. And and we it, it represents the power of God over the forces of evil in our lives uh, go back and look the, the gospel of your salvation paul calls it there in verse 13 the word of truth the gospel of your salvation well brothers sisters we have the gospel with us and, and we are charged to proclaim it to proclaim the gospel and so we go and we proclaim salvation and what that means is victory over sin because we've been saved from sin But not only that, we have the guarantee, verse 14, of our inheritance. Your translation may say the pledge of our inheritance. That's, That's good, too. But the inheritance is eternal life with God. And so as we go forward in this world with that guarantee, that down payment, that deposit within us of our inheritance, we are living, breathing, walking testimonies of God's victory over eternal death. And then also, we are, we are the possessions of God. Uh, he goes on, he says, until we acquire possession of it, but also that our possession uh, points to the fact that we are the possession of God. In fact, the, the way that this is phrased in the original language is it could be understood as until God redeems his possession. What does God get when when all of this is over? The time is no more and we enter into into the eternal state. What does God get out of all this? The answer is, I think I heard it, us. He gets us. We are the possessions of God. Matthew 28, verse 19 says that we go and we make disciples of all nations. We baptize them in the name of, or literally into the possession of, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It was a a banking term, that in the name of. So we become the possession of God when we obey the Gospel. And that means we are no longer the possession of the evil one. We have victory over slavery to sin. Yes, we are no longer slaves of sin. Now we are the possession of God. So we need to acknowledge, again, the power of this seal, that we are victorious over sin and death and even the devil himself, not because we're so big and bad in and of ourselves, but because of what God is do, has done in Christ and how the Holy Spirit is now applying that to our lives on a day-to-day basis. Turn the page, a couple pages I guess, over to chapter 6 of Ephesians and look at verse 17 ephesians 6 and verse 17 we we can acknowledge the power of the sword because notice paul says you take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of god we must continue to pour over the truth of god's word we need to be people of the book we need to be people who read our bibles and study our bibles because here's the thing the evil one is the father of lies And it is a battle of the mind, and he will come at us with all of the the force of his lies. How will we overcome the lies of the devil? It will be through the truth of God's Word. If we don't, we will fall prey to him. We'll stumble and fall into sin. And so we need, again, to acknowledge the power of the sword, the Holy Spirit-given Word of God. Come with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And we really need to begin reading in verse 1. Some of this is a recapitulation, a, a restatement of what we've been talking about thus far concerning the power of God at work in our lives through His Spirit. Let's, let's pick up the reading here in Romans 1, verse 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus... For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. You hear, you hear the, the, the contrast being made here, right? The dichotomy between life according to the flesh and life according to the Spirit. Christians, we don't live in the flesh. Don't get me wrong. We still battle against it and struggle against it and war against the flesh. But we are those who live according to the Spirit of God. That's where Christians are. That's who Christians are. Verse 6, For the mind, for, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. When our minds are set upon the standard of the Spirit, then we continue to live victoriously over evil and we have life and peace and the fullness of that verse 7 for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to god for it does not submit to god's law indeed it cannot for those who are in the flesh cannot please god you want to please god we need to set our mind on the spirit that is pleasing to god and then we live according to that right we live according to The Spirit who lives within us. Look at verses 26 and 27. Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Do you hear what he's saying here? I don't know if you've ever thought about your prayer life as a weakness, but essentially that's what Paul is saying here. The Spirit helps, helps us in our weakness because we don't even know what to pray for, right? And in those times of weakness, it is the Spirit who supports us. As he intercedes for us on our behalf, with groanings too deep for words, when we don't even know what to pray for, we have the helper who's at work in our lives. And he intercedes for us, and this is all according to the will of God, right? Back in verse 27, the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is God's will. And so we, we devote ourselves to the truth of God's word, but then we also devote ourselves to prayer we find the assurance of the superiority of the power of the spirit even over ourselves recognizing yes we are weak clay jars yet we have this immeasurable treasure of the gospel and even of god himself living within us supporting us interceding on our behalf much more could be said about the power that we have but jesus shows us Taking that step with power. He, Jesus, lived in perfect obedience, unceasing obedience to the Father, and He did it by reliance upon the Spirit of God, which is the beauty of the triune God at work in the life and ministry of Christ. And it's that same God who is at work in our lives, even within us, to cut down the... Uh, the forces of darkness to cut down the, uh, the strongholds that exist in our hearts and our minds. Throughout his ministry, we see Jesus is, is consistently relying upon the Spirit in, in order to overcome the evil. And it starts right at the beginning of his ministry with the temptations. He's led by the Spirit out into the wilderness. And it continues all the way up, even through the crucifixion part of what Jesus is saying. He says a number of things on the cross but did you you ever notice that some of those sayings of Jesus on the cross are from scripture the spirit given scriptures and so the words of the spirit of God are found on the lips of our Lord even as he is dying Jesus did this again because of his confidence in the power of the spirit And in this way, he, through his life, Jesus leaves us this example where it's okay. You have his permission to rely upon the Spirit of God who is at work in you. (laughs) We need that same confidence to know that that our Father hears our prayers, that we pray in Jesus' name the Spirit is at work interceding on our behalf with those groanings too deep for words. Communicates those things to our Father and indeed His power is at work in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives as we seek to live in accordance with the will of God. Let's commit this to prayer. Lord God we thank you that Through Christ, you've left us an example that we might follow in his steps. When it comes to the Spirit, we we pray, first of all, we would acknowledge the power of the Spirit at work in us, that we would firmly rely upon the Spirit-given word, the Spirit's power at work in us to bring about holiness in us, and that we would rely upon the Spirit in our prayer lives as well. Be mindful of our frame. Father, we are only dust. And help us to put us in mind of ways in which the Spirit is at work to help us in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.